All right, we're in Revelation chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 4 through 8. But I want to just remind us of where we are, um, for those of you that might have missed um, the week before last when we looked at the first three verses. And just a brief reminder overall in our study in the book of Revelation, remember the first three chapters deal principally with Jesus revealing himself to the seven churches. We find Jesus challenging the seven churches. There are only two of the seven that are without any rebuke at all. And after the letters addressing the seven churches, we move into chapter four, and we find John is called up into the throne room. And from four all the way down to a couple of chapters from where we are now, we see the centrality of the throne on full display. We're in the throne room. John is called up, as it were, into the heavenly control tower. And it's vital to our understanding of everything that is unfolding and takes place in this vision that the Lord Jesus is giving John that we understand this is all done under the supervision, the superintending, if you will, the sovereign providence of God. This is meant, by the way, I'll repeat this, this is meant to encourage the church. There's a promise when we begin our study in the book of Revelation to everyone that reads and hears and obeys, there is a promise given of blessing. So this is, this is not meant to mystify the church for generations. This is meant to encourage the church. And we have often looked at the book of Revelation as shrouded in mystery that is not for our understanding. And we're missing the boat there. Jesus is the central figure in the, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the beast. It's not the revelation of the mark of the beast. It's not the revelation of the dragon or the woman that rides upon the dragon. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is to take the church's focus off of this world and this life and put it on the person of Jesus Christ. That is the intended purpose of the book of Revelation for the church. So last time we studied the first three verses of, of chapter 7, which begins to answer the question that chapter 6 ends with. And we are in the process of understanding and studying the opening of the seven seals. And chapter 6 ends with an incredibly important question. And we spent time on this two weeks ago. Leading up to that question, we have a picture of God's judgment. And if you look at the end of chapter 6, when he opened the sixth seal, verse 12 of chapter 6, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like the scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And here's the question. And who can stand? It's not popular in our culture. It's not winsome to talk about the wrath of God. But guess what it is? It's biblical. It's true. And there is coming a time, and Revelation pictures this for us, there's coming a time when God is going to return in his wrath to judge this world. And, and the pertinent question, the most important question that any of us can answer is, can I stand in that day? When God comes back in his wrath to judge this world, what will my response be? Because there's two responses here. There are the kings of the earth, the rich, the powerful, all of those with privilege. And guess what? That matters not a bit at the return of Christ. We talked about Solomon's wealth this morning. Didn't matter a bit. There's two responses. Will I call for the rocks to fall on me and hide me? because of my shame, just like Adam and Eve 
tried to hide in the garden? Or will I stand before him forgiven in the righteousness of Christ? There's two responses and only two. But this this, uh, passage that we're looking at, there's a pause. Remember, we talked about this between chapter six and chapter eight. We find chapter seven is an interlude or a pause that is very purposeful. It is a purposeful pause. Say that seven times fast. See if you can do it. Why is the purposeful pause there? Because at the end of chapter six, we find the coming of the wrath of God. Who can stand? That question must be answered. And if the church is to be encouraged, the church needs to be able to answer that question. Who can stand before the wrath of the almighty God, the lamb? Who can stand? So chapter seven is answering that question for us. That's the whole point of chapter seven. And it is, I have found as I've studied it, one of the most encouraging books or chapters in scripture. Remember, there are four points to this um, this chapter that we looked at. Last time we looked at the, the first point, which was the wind restrained, the believer sealed, verses one through three. And I want you to see that this is a snapshot, not chronologically, but a snapshot of the same thing from different perspectives. And I've used the analogy before. You're at a wedding and you get your own camera. We're all taking pictures of the same event, but they all look different. But it's of the same event. So Revelation is not intended to be looked at as a chronological sequence of events. Because what you're going to see with the opening of the seven seals, we're we're about to go into the seven trumpets. And then we're going to have the seven vials. Well, what, what are they? They're all pictures of the same thing from different angles. So that we can understand them. They're not... And and we need to understand this as well. The book of Revelation is not intended to tell us when Jesus is coming back. The number one objective for, for many people studying the book of Revelation is, if I can unlock the Rubik's Cube of biblical mystery, I will know when Jesus is coming back. And what does Jesus tell his own disciples? It's not your business. You have one concern. And that is what ought you to be in your life regarding godliness as you wait for the coming return of Christ. So we're seeing the same picture from another angle. And we talked about this chapter six, the opening of the first four seals, the four horsemen. The picture of the four winds is just another view of the same of the same thing. These four horsemen where these winds unleash tragic events. Jesus referred to these in Matthew chapter 24 as birth pains, wars, rumors of wars, the lack of peace. We talked about that this morning. These happenings, these tragic circumstances throughout human history are harbingers or reminders of the coming great day of judgment. And in a very real sense, they're acts of mercy from God. We looked at Luke chapter 13, where Jesus answering some some questions regarding tragedy that comes into people's lives. And there's a a crime talked about where, where Galileans had their blood mingled with sacrifices by Pilate. And they go to Jesus and say, what do these people do that they ended up being the victims of this crime? They must have done something awful. And Jesus said, they're no more worse sinners than you are. Therefore, repent. The point of these these horrific happenings is to remind mankind that judgment is coming. And today is a time to repent. Or when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18. He said, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus would not have gotten a a claim and applause for rounding off the hard edges here. But he was truthful. And in his truthfulness, incredibly loving to warn them that their day is coming. So in the midst of the blowing of the winds here, the, the, the four horsemen, we see God working 
his sovereign plan and all of it. So the opening of the seals does not answer the question for us when, but it answers the question why. What is God doing in the midst of all of this? And the ultimate question that we must ask ourselves is, are we ready? 2 Peter 8, 11 through 13, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Talked about the wealth of Solomon this morning. Where is that today? Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We see the winds restrained in the first three verses that that uh, holding back of the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And we talked about this. What is the four winds a picture here? This is this is symbolism. This is figurative language of literal truth. So what are the four winds a picture of? And we examine this deeply. It is a picture of spiritual wickedness in high places. We looked at Mark chapter 4, where Jesus um, falls asleep in the boat, and his disciples wake him up in a panic. Lord, are you not worried that we're going to drown? We're going to die? And what does Jesus do? He says to the winds, peace be still. And immediately, he calmed the winds. And the story continues. Jesus goes right, steps off the boat, and is immediately confronted with the man who is possessed with a legion of demons. And what does Jesus do? He commands liberty for the demoniac. He's in absolute sovereign authority over spiritual wickedness. J.K. Beale, who's been an incredible resource as I study this, says this, the winds must be held back to prevent their harmful activity is evidence of their rebellious and wicked nature. They are evil, angelic agents of judgment. We remember the restraints placed on each of the horsemen. Verse two, we saw the promise or the command to not hurt until the servants or the bond slaves of our God are sealed on their foreheads. We talked about this seal. What is this seal? Um, much of the book of Revelation, if you boil it down, the one thing when people talk about it is where do they go? Revelation chapter 13. What's the mark of the beast? What is it? And there's lots of things that get our attention when we ponder that. Um, is it a chip that's put in our hand? And there are people that are trying to do that. Is it, it fill in the blank? There's hundreds of different scenarios, but I want you to see that Satan is an imposter. He is an impersonator. And the answer to Revelation chapter 13 is found right here in Revelation chapter 7. What is this seal? Well, Revelation 14.1 does give us a hint. It says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The picture here is the mark of ownership. Who owns you? This is the stamp of God's ownership and preservation on the believer. This is none other than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And listen, we're not left to conjecture about this. Scripture tells us what this is. Where does this imagery of being sealed come from? Are we left to speculate? Or does the Scripture tell us? Well, we find two specific references. One is Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 5. And this is Ezekiel, in, in this prophecy, he is seeing a, a like picture as John here. He says, and he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city. It's referring to Jerusalem here. Each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them 
was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it had rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, listen to this, who had the writing case at his waist. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through through Jerusalem and mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. This is the same picture of Exodus chapter 12, where Israel was told, put the blood on the doorpost and the destroyer will skip or pass over your house. The picture here is that the the servants of God are sealed and protected from the wrath of God. That's this picture. And I want you to see, first of all, that this is the authentic work of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the counterfeit mark of ownership of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Well, what is this mark? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us. It's the same word here in the Greek. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If I were to ask you this morning, how do you know you're a child of God? What would you say? How do you know? You may open up your Bible and go to the front cover where you wrote the date. This is the date that I was converted. Or this is the date that I was baptized. There are many people who have had false professions of faith. Many people who have been falsely baptized. Is your assurance of salvation based on something that occurred in your past? Or is there more to it? We looked at in detail, and I'll go through it quickly just to remind you, but this is the most important question that we can ask. Who do we belong to? There's only two options. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me, what? Is Is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no happy medium. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There isn't. (laughs) There are people that say, well, I'm not against God. I'm agnostic. I'm not anti-God or anti-Christ, but I don't believe. I'm I'm good with Christians. You guys do your thing. I'll do my thing. I'm just riding right down the middle of the road here, and I can go either way. No. The scripture teaches that you belong in one of two camps. Either you're in the camp of Satan or you're in the camp of Christ. And if you're not in the camp of Satan, it's because you've been rescued by Christ. Well, how does he rescue us? He rescues us through the work of regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what? You must be born again. Nicodemus was, and if you look at that, Jesus is explaining to him what regeneration is. And he says with a definite article, you are the teacher of Israel And I have to explain this to you. What is he telling Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you're religious. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees, but you're dead as a doornail. So how do I know if I've been born of the spirit of God? Quickly. First of all, and most importantly, you've been made a new creature. You have been born again or born from above. This is the work of God. This is the the salvific work of the Godhead. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You cannot be born again and be the same. It's impossible. You are given a new heart. And by the way, that new heart, Ezekiel 36, we talked about 
cutting open the chest cavity and opening it up. Who has ever committed or done heart surgery on themselves? <laughs> I'm going to administer the an anesthesia. I'm going to cut myself open, take out the old heart, put the new one in. It's a, it is a picture in Ezekiel 36 of something only someone outside of you can do. Yeah. You cannot, you can't do it yourself. Just like Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have nothing to do with you being born. Did you say to your mother, I want blonde hair and blue eyes before you were born? Or I don't like your last name. I'd rather be born to someone. No, <laughs> we have nothing to say about our birth. The other analogy we see is, is Jesus giving Nicodemus resurrecting life. You say, well, didn't Nicodemus play a part in that? Yes, Nicodemus did. When Jesus said, uh, or excuse me, Lazarus, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what did Lazarus do? He came forth. He came forth. How did Lazarus do that? Well, because he had been made alive. If Jesus hadn't have commanded Lazarus to come forth, what would Lazarus be doing? Rotting. He would be rotting in the grave. Have you been made a new creature? Do you believe the gospel? Christ alone. Your hope is in God, not your own performance. We'll talk about that this morning. You are submitted to his word. These are all signs that you've been born from above. You have lost your love for this world. That's a tough one. You have a new relationship to sin. 1 John 3, 9. You've been given a new wanter by the spirit of God. And then you love the brethren. One of the ways that we know that we love Jesus is we love each other. If we don't love each other, we don't love Jesus. And you say, well, sometimes there's not a whole lot to love about each other, is there? Amen. So what should I be doing? I should be trying to be as lovable as I can so that it makes it easy for you to love me. You ever thought about that? Some of us are hard to love, aren't we? So does the sealing of the Holy Spirit protect us from physical harm? Well, we have Job and Peter, both who experienced the painful sifting of Satan to answer that question for us. The sealing of the Spirit of God protects us from spiritual harm. Jesus tells the seven churches that he that is, is, um, is sealed, the second death can't harm him. That's what our protection is from. The sealing protects us from that day of wrath in which we might get caught up in the mix. Have you ever thought about that? I don't want the Lord to overlook me. Well, the fact is, if you are sealed, he can't. He won't. Why? We talked about that this morning. He keeps his word, doesn't he? So who can stand in the great day of the, the Lord? The answer is only those who have been sealed by the Spirit of God. And if you've been sealed, you need not worry that you will be forgotten or overlooked. But be sure of this, Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Point number two, as we move to that this morning, verses four through eight, we see a covenant picture of the church. <clears throat> what do we make of these next five verses? Who are the 144,000? Well, let's make some observations here. If you look at verse four, what does John say regarding the number of the sealed? What does he say? And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Now, if you go down to verse 9, what does it say? You're going to have to open your Bibles for that because it's not on the screen. What does verse 9 of Revelation say? And after this, I looked. So in verse 4, John is hearing the 144,000 in verse nine, he's seeing what it looks like. Okay. We're not getting to verse nine today. So no danger there, but um, it's going to help us understand verses four through eight. Remember the book of revelation uses figurative language and symbolic pictures to illustrate 
the literal truth. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, listen, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, the widely held view amongst evangelicals, and this is something that each one of us will have to wrestle with if you haven't already. Maybe you're in the middle of wrestling with it, but we have to resolve the question of Israel and the church to understand our view on eschatology. And many commentators, and I would say it's the, the most prominently held view, view the 144,000 as a literal number of ethnic Israel. And I wholeheartedly and most respectfully disagree um, with this view for a number of reasons that I think will become evident this morning. But I believe this number is figurative, it's symbolic, and representative of the complete body of Christ. Certainly included in this number are, are members of ethnic national Israel. Say, well, how do I know that? Well, look at that verse right there. Romans 11.1, 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself. Who's talking here? Paul. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Romans 11, and we don't have time this morning to look into it, but Romans 11 goes into great detail to show us that God is still going to save some from ethnic Israel. Now, how do we know that? Well, Paul is living proof, and he uses himself in that very role. In, in Romans 11, verses 1 through 6, he says in verse 4, but what is God's reply to him, meaning Elijah, when Elijah was discouraged, goes into the wilderness, and he reminds Elijah, he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, what were the rest of the Israelites doing? while those that had not bowed the knee to Baal were kept. This is his remnant, the scripture says. Well, they were worshiping Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, there are two, I think, opposite spectrum views regarding this and one is that there are two covenants god has a covenant with the nation of israel and another covenant with the church and i i believe as i study scripture this is a just a disjointed way of looking at the redemptive plan of god the other end of that spectrum is what we call replacement theology that is the teaching that because many of the Jews did not acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah of promise, God replaced the nation of Israel with the Gentile church. Both of these views are problematic in that, does God need a plan B? No. He does not. If God is sovereign and his election is dealing with the individual from the very foundation of the world, he then is somehow surprised that Israel would disobey. We talked about that in great detail this morning. Was God surprised that Solomon took a thousand wives? Did it undo his plan? No. I believe the biblical or the correct view is this. God made a promise to Abraham. And that covenant promise to Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in all, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, here's the question. How is that fulfilled? You say, well, it's fulfilled by a certain political party that treats the nation of Israel right so that God will be nice to us. It's not what it says. Paul interprets this for us. He would know. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. And this passage shows us that the covenant is kept and fulfilled in Christ. 
And guys, I want to tell you something. Sometimes when I'm studying, the Lord slaps me in the face with a truth and knocks me right out of my chair, figuratively speaking. I mean, sometimes it happens literally, but mostly <laughs> figuratively. And there's there's uh, something that I want you to see this morning that that blew me away. We talked in great detail this morning about Israel's inability to keep covenant with God. Why? Because they were sinners. And God gave them the law. There are people that view the Old Testament and Israel as saying the, the Israelites were only saved by the keeping of the law. Well, if that's true, name one Israelite that kept the law. If that were true, not one Israelite would be saved. Not one. Because what, what did every one of them do? They broke the law. And the scripture says, if you offend the law in one point, what? You shattered it. Here's a nation of covenant breakers. And you say, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was there. If I saw all the miracles and all the, the supernatural happenings that, that they saw, I would never have done that. Yeah, we would have. Galatians 3, 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or add to it, adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, there's no changing of the promise here. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Listen to this. Quote, and to your offspring, who is what? Anybody got their Bibles open? You following along with me? And to your offspring, who is Christ? The fulfillment of the promise covenant to Abraham is fulfilled completely in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes into a long dissertation on the law of God and its purpose. Talks about the fact that it is our schoolmaster, our guardian, to bring us and to point us to Christ. The Old Testament, the, the law in the Old Testament was never intended to establish the righteousness of the nation of Israel. It was intended to show them their sinfulness and to point them directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that covenant promised to Abraham. Romans 3 also speaks extensively on the purpose of the law. It is to conclude all, both Jew and Gentile, under sin, so that righteousness is attained by faith. Romans 3, 27, that what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Mark introduced us to trigonometry with the sine wave of sin. <laughs> the terms of the covenant in the Old Testament were the keeping of the law. Israel, if you will obey me, what? Blessing. Israel, if you disobey me, what? Cursing. Our first clue to understanding who the sealed are is, is found in Ephesians chapter 1, which we talked about. I want you to see also that this is a promise to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. <laughs> this is a promise to the church. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And listen, I will write on him the name of my God. This is the same marking or sealing, if you will. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. If you would, uh, Jesse, go to slide five. So the next slide, um, and this is a bit of an eye chart. So those of you with good eyesight will not have any problems. Those of you with poor eyesight are probably seeing a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> so I want you to see some observations here. And like I said, I was knocked out of my chair as I studied this. What are the observations when we compare the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob, 
in Genesis 49 with Revelation 7. Did you catch any differences? Yeah. No, Ephraim. There are, there are some observations that I want to point out here. First of all, notice Judah, who is fourth. And this is the accounting of the sons of Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 is, is Jacob giving blessings and, and pronouncing prophetic um, futures for his sons. Judah is the fourth born. In the Revelation, Revelation 7, he moves the first. Why do you think that is? Well, remember, as we looked at the lamb before the throne, what was he called? Before he's called the lamb, he's called the lion, what? Of the tribe of Judah. What we're seeing here is a comparison. The 12 tribes under Jacob and the 12 tribes under Jesus. And I'll tell you why we should see it that way. And this is an amazing picture. Who was Jacob? Brother, you touched on that this morning in our Bible study. Can anybody speak to the character of our buddy Jacob? Scallywag. He was, he was a scallywag. He was a ruffian. Um, and he was a deceiver. And a deceiver of the worst kind. You remember what he did to steal the blessing. And yet he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But he was a covenant breaker, a liar, a deceiver, a conniver, a thief. And in Revelation chapter 5, a question is asked. Who is worthy to open the scrolls? Where was Jacob? Now, I believe without any doubt he's a child of God in glory. But when the rhetorical question is asked, who is worthy to open the scrolls? Jacob doesn't raise his hand and say, I can do it. No, who is worthy to open the scrolls? Lamb, Lord Jesus. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Why is it called a root of David? Well, because the kingdom of David had been severed, or so it seemed, right? The kingdom was was given over because of sin. But God made a promise, didn't he? And he said, your kingdom, I will establish it, what? Forever. So how is the kingdom of David established forever? In the person of Christ. And he's called in Revelation chapter 5, the root of David. Coming up out of the stump that's severed off because of the sin of David and the sin of Solomon and the sin of Jacob is this root, the fulfillment of the eternal promise. I want want to show this to you. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. And I, I, I saw something that I had not seen before, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now why, why was Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus to flee to Egypt? You remember? Because of the great wickedness that was being perpetrated on the nation of Israel by Herod. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Listen to what the scripture says. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. 
Now you think that's, it's an innocuous prophecy, but, but scripture is very careful to show us that that prophecy is being fulfilled in detail. But it's quoting an Old Testament passage. And that Old Testament passage is Hosea 11.1. 1. Listen, listen to this verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew is directly equating Hosea 11 with Jesus being the personification and the fulfillment of my son Israel. Because what we're going to see is that everywhere we turn, Jacob fails and Jesus fulfills. The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is written specifically to to the nation of Israel so that they would see that their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob failed time and time again to keep covenant. And the Messiah is here and he is fulfilling every promise. Jesus was delivered from Egypt to fulfill the scripture, but it doesn't end there. Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, we find Israel, the nation, had left Egypt. They had been loose from their bonds, and they have a problem. They they become landlocked by a little body of water called the Red Sea. And what do they do when their backs are against the water? And here comes Pharaoh with his horses and his chariots, those mighty weapons of war. Verse 11 or verse 12 of Exodus 14. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? This is Israel talking to Moses. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In other words, we're dead. We're goners. There's no hope. And Moses said to the people, fear fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And we know what happened, don't we? Matthew chapter three, turn there with me, if you will. Now, here's a question for you. Why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever wrestled with that question before? Why was Jesus baptized? Did Jesus have sins to repent of? The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. Israel, repent, confess your sins, and be baptized. Why did Jesus get baptized? Jesus comes to John, and remember, John protests. John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And what was Jesus' answer to him? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill righteousness. And immediately after he was baptized, we have a voice from heaven, the heavenly father, the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And what are the words from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized to pass through the water because he is Israel. Where the nation of Israel, Jacob and his descendants failed when they they walked over on dry land. They complained before they walked through on dry land. And we find in scripture that as soon as they get on the other side, they start complaining again. How's that possible? You just saw the Red Sea parted stood up like skyscrapers on both sides and you, God walks you through on dry ground, not muddy, not moist, not damp, dry ground. And he, and he destroys the most powerful army in the world. And oh, you brought us out here to die. We're going to starve. What? Where they, where Jacob failed, Jesus fulfills. What happens immediately after they come out of the Red Sea? Where do they go? We find that they immediately go into the wilderness of sin. And how long do they stay there? Why do they stay there for 40 years? When we look at their route, it's like they're doing circles in the wilderness, in the desert. Why? Wasn't there a point A to point B quicker solution to get to where they were going with the promised land? Yes. 
But because of sin, they stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Where does Jesus go immediately after he's Matthew chapter 4, immediately after Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Where is Jesus? The Spirit takes him and drives him into the wilderness where he is there for how long? 40 days. Do you see, do you see the correlation here? And what does Jesus do in the wilderness? Satan comes to tempt him. And what's the temptation? You're hungry. Mm-hmm. You're the son of God. All you have to do is say the word and you can turn stones into bread. And what does Jesus respond to him? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I am absolutely submitted and obedient to the will of the Father. And I am here hungry, tired, and thirsty, and I'm submitted to God. What did Israel, the nation, say when they were in the wilderness? You brought us out here to die, Moses. Jacob failed. Jesus fulfilled. How about the next step for Israel? They go to Mount Sinai. What happens on Mount Sinai? We know very well Exodus 20. And Exodus 20 turns into 12 chapters of God giving his law for Israel. And what happens to Israel? Well, Moses, you've been gone so long. We're bored. What do we do? We don't want to worship this God. Make us a golden calf. And the scripture says they rose up to eat, drink, and play. Where do we find Jesus after he is in the wilderness? Matthew chapter 5 is the sermon on what? And what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? As soon as um, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Jesus obeyed where Israel failed. The nation failed. Jacob failed. What did, what did Moses do when he came down off of the mountain to the Ten Commandments? In his anger, the scripture says, Exodus 32, 19, he came near the camp, saw the calf, the dancing, and Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Do you see the correlation here? Jesus is fulfilling everything where Jacob failed. How about the law? The Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 16, Israel's hungry. We find them out in the wilderness. And they're they're getting hungry. And what does God do? He says to Moses in Exodus 16, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What What were the commands given to the people of Israel? I'm literally going to feed you from dropping food out of the sky. All you have to do is go out and gather it six days, and then on the sixth day, what do you do? You gather enough. For the seventh, there are two things pictured here. What is the manna picturing? What is the manna picturing? God says, I'm going to test these people, which is what? Yes, it's a picture of who? The Lord Jesus. And they were to rest on the seventh day. This is a test for Israel. And what did Israel do? They failed. What happened to the manna that they they gathered up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? They rotted. And it's a very clear picture. When we try to add to the work of Christ, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, worm-filled, rotten, disgusting. Israel was given a test. Will you rest in my Sabbath, the Lord Jesus? Or will you try and do it on your own? And ironically, In the Gospel of Matthew, we find the Pharisees coming to Jesus to accuse him of not being obedient on the Sabbath. And in Matthew chapter 12, we find the disciples in the grain fields 
as they're walking, they're plucking grain. Somebody sees them and, and we got them. Finally, the great lawbreaker will be exposed for who he is. And as they bring this charge of lawlessness against the Lord Jesus, we find Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 10, there was a man with a withered hand. <laughs> this is this is crazy. We're about to ridicule the Lord Jesus for healing a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. Are you, you talk about missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And a man there was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus continues, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. You got to be kidding. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Who is he talking about here? He is the fulfillment of this promise. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jacob fails again and again. Jesus fulfills again and again. The second thing that I want you to see, there are four sons of the bond slaves. Dan, Gad, Asher, and Aphelai are all sons of concubines or bond slaves, either Billah or Zilpah. They were given to Rachel and Leah by Laban, their father. What claim did they have on the covenant promise of God? None. What claim did they have? And then what do we see happen to those? Where did they go? Seven, eight, nine, ten. They move up three, four, five. Now Dan is excluded and he's replaced with Manasseh. Billa and Zilpah are both servants or bond slaves and were considered outside the covenant. They had no claim to the covenant. And this is a beautiful picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of Israel. We look at the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And there are very there are three very suspect women named in Matthew chapter 1. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba. What all what do all three of these women have in common? And sinners. Scripture is very clear. Tamar deceives in order to to bring up lawful offspring. Rahab was a prostitute, did not even believe belong to the nation of Israel. And it is her lineage infused into the line of Christ through Ruth and Boaz that we see the seed of David, the root of David come, the Lord Jesus. What is that a picture of? Guys, it, it screams grace, God's grace. Here are four people that should be looked past, looked over, forgotten about, and they're elevated in the kingdom of God. Dan is replaced with Manasseh. Why? Well, Judges 18 goes into detail about Dan and how he led, the, the tribe of Dan led Israel into idolatry. It was what defined them. He's excluded from this list. Well, what does that tell me? If Dan is left off this list, then what does that tell me about the lineage of being in the line of Israel? Nationally speaking, the flesh, prophets, nothing. Nothing. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is what? 
no help at all. It profits nothing. You say, well, certainly they had a leg up because they, Dan was a son of Abraham. Galatians 6, 11, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Listen to this. This is Paul of the tribe of Benjamin. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. What did we talk about? The sealing of the Spirit of God is what counts. Regeneration is what marks you out as a son of Israel. The flesh is no help at all. John the Baptist talking to the nation of Israel in John in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Well, that's welcoming. That's inclusive. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, listen, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither, listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, and this clears up any ambiguity here. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you see this? Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the fulfillment. This is to answer the question as we conclude this morning. Who can stand? We need to understand the fact that if a son of Abraham is excluded from this list. What about a son of a Christian, a child of a believer? We need to be careful that we don't think for a second that we have some spiritual leg up because mom and dad are believers. God will hold each one of us accountable. The question is, who can stand? It isn't those who are physical descendants of the faith. It isn't those who rest In their attempt to keep the law, it is those who are resting in the finished work of Christ as the only source of their righteousness. What does Paul say in Philippians 3, 9 as we close? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The question for us this morning is, how are we standing? Are we standing in the righteousness of Christ? Are we standing in something else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you because you have kept every promise you have ever made. And Father, we look at ourselves and we look at the historical accounts of saints in the word of God and Every one of them were sinners. Every one of them have failed. And Father, we know that if it was left up to our performance, we would not have a shred of hope. There's no way we can fulfill the absolute perfection required by the law. The law is our schoolmaster to drive us to you. Because you are our Sabbath. 
Father, I pray that if there are any here this morning that are not in Christ, that they would look to Christ for their Sabbath, that they would rest in him, that they would cease their work, their labor, their efforts to be good, and that they would find their righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law of the Father. Thank you for our time together. I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our time. In your name we pray. Amen.